Thank you. Please um, get your Bibles and open them to Matthew 27. Um, We're going to look uh, from verse 62 to the end of chapter 28. Um, Maybe you're here visiting or maybe new to church for the first time. I don't really know many of you. Um, But it's this passage here um, that explains why the church is so important uh, and why we want to be involved in setting up more churches across the city and across this nation. I'm really going to focus in on the last um, four verses of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, but uh, let me just read to us from verse 62 because we're going to make reference to that and it will help frame uh, everything that we see in its context. So Matthew 27, verse 62. It's on page 1000 of the Church Bibles. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that whilst he was still alive, that deceiver, that is Jesus, said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, it dawned on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him and clasped his feet. And they worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away whilst we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always until the very end of the age. Some moments in history where a single event can spark off a radical worldwide movement. So one thinks of Rosa Parks' simple refusal to 
sit at the back of the bus and how that moment of defiance helped spark this great movement of racial harmony in America. Or 500 years ago to this year when a rebellious young Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed his 95-point thesis against indulgences to a cathedral door in Wittenberg, sparking off the Reformation movement which would shape the face of Western Europe in years to come. Great movements in history are often driven by great events. Well, I want to say to you that there is no greater movement in the history of mankind than the movement that we see beginning here in Matthew 28. This is a movement that would be not confined to a particular people group or a particular era of time. It's a movement of joy, a movement of worship that would unite people across the world from vastly different nations and bring them together as they worship the one Jesus Christ. And this movement was driven by one great singular event, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. What we read here in Matthew 28 is the beginning of the church of Jesus. Everything the church stands for, everything that the church of Jesus is about is fueled by the most amazing truth that Jesus Christ has defeated death, that he has risen from the grave, and that he is alive today. This is the reason here why church planting is one of the most important things we need to be thinking about as a church. When we, when we think about how we can set up churches in areas like Charleston, that's when we get on board with the movement that began here in Matthew chapter 28. Now, as we look at these last four verses of this chapter, um, Jesus' kind of last speech that he gives in Matthew to his disciples, famously called the, the Great Commission, it's really the climax of everything we see in Matthew's gospel. If you were to read through Matthew's gospel, which, which you are on Sunday mornings, you'll see that all the big themes of Matthew get tied up in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Uh, And what we see here is three big implications that Matthew wants us to grasp about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Three implications of the resurrection. Firstly, the resurrection proves to us that Jesus is the authoritative king of all the world. Secondly, the resurrection gives us good news to proclaim to all the world. And thirdly, the resurrection assures us that Jesus is with us until the very end of the world. So I want to look through those points in turn. Firstly then, the resurrection proves that Jesus is the authoritative king of all the world. Look at verse 16 there. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, when you read through Matthew's gospel, you see that one of Matthew's aims is to try and convince us that that Jesus is this great king. That the kind of theme of kingship is a huge theme in Matthew's gospel. That he is this king who has authority over everything. That's been his big agenda. And the kind of final proof that Jesus really is that king, the coronation of Jesus, if you will, is his own resurrection from the grave. I mean, you could not get more concrete evidence than the resurrection of Jesus. And what's surprising, though, in Matthew 28, I don't know if you noticed that when we read it, 
is that no one, not even Jesus' own followers, were expecting the resurrection. No one was expecting this would happen, even though Jesus had told them time and time again that he would rise again in the third day. That's why none of them are near his tomb in Matthew 28. That's why verse 17, even when the resurrected Jesus is right in front of their eyes, what does Matthew tell us? Some doubted. Why would you put that in here? If you're trying to convince people, as Matthew is, why would you say that some of the founders of the church doubted? It's because none of them expected this to happen. They needed convincing. They did not believe any more than we do that dead people come back to life. But now they are here, and and although some of them maybe did doubt at first, they all end up worshiping Jesus. And it's actually pretty incredible because if there was one group in the ancient world that would never have worshipped a man as God, it would have been the ancient Jews. They never would have done that. And yet here we have these 11 men and these women who meet Jesus at the tomb. And they're bowing before this man in worship. And they're calling him God. In fact, almost overnight, we have hundreds of Jewish people worshiping Jesus as God. Why? Because of the resurrection. It's the most compelling evidence. It's it's God's stamp of authenticity to the world that, that declares Jesus is the Son of God, the King of the nations, the Lord of all. Here is God in the flesh. And that's why Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Because I live, because I have defeated death, I want you all to know that I have complete authority. Now that, now we just read that. Some of you might be quite familiar with the Great Commission. We just read over that statement. That is an immense statement. Do you know what that means? That means that, that everything in creation is under the sovereign control of King Jesus. He rules the wind and the waves. He governs everything from from subatomic particles to nebulas and galaxies. He owns it all, he's in charge of it all, and he controls it all. As the old Dutch Prime Minister Abraham Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. All the other rulers in the history of the world pale into insignificance with this king. They are finite and frail as dust, but here is the infinite, eternal, all-knowing, death-conquering, all-powerful, all-good king of kings. He commands all the armies of heaven. He's got all the authority of heaven. He commands all the armies of heaven with its legion of angels at his call. He is sovereign over everything. You see that in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 8. He is sovereign over evil. He is sovereign over sin. He is sovereign over chaos. Even death itself has to submit to the authority of King Jesus. And therefore, this is what this means for you and I today. The risen Christ is your king. And he has absolute authority over you and over every single aspect of your life. Every decision you make. He has the authority over it. Now, does that sound like good news to you? Because for some people here, that might not sound like such good news. In fact, in in Matthew 28, I wanted to read the whole passage because there tends to be in Matthew 28 two responses 
to this kind of declaration of authority that the resurrection brings. And there, this rejection or rejoicing. That's the two responses the authority of King Jesus brings. Rejection or rejoicing. So notice you have these religious leaders in Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew 27, 62 onwards. Uh, They've been constantly opposed to Jesus. Um, Even after his death, which they orchestrated, they're afraid that people will say he has risen. So they set up this guard and this seal on the tomb as if that's going to stop God to make sure that his disciples don't steal the body and say, ah, Jesus is risen, just like he said. Um, It's funny how they seem to remember that more than the disciples do. But notice what happens, verse 4. I love the irony. Matthew is such a wonderful writer. It's a great gospel to get into. I love the irony of verse 4, chapter 28. The guards who are alive become like one who is dead, and the one who is dead is alive. And then they go and tell the religious leaders what happens. And the religious leaders pay the guards off and come up with this story, which Matthew says was circulated to his day, showing that this gospel was written very near the time of when these events occurred. See, even in the face of irrefutable fact, they would rather deny the authority of Jesus than accept it. Why? Because it's not about facts or evidence It's about who I want to be in charge. They don't like having someone who claims total authority over every aspect of their lives because these religious leaders, you read in Matthew's gospel, they seek to serve themselves only. Why do the guards not worship Jesus when they've seen the evidence? Because they love money. Remember Jesus' teaching earlier in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. The claims of Jesus are not often rejected because people have looked at the evidence and seen it lacking. Now some of you may be here and you may want to know what the evidence is and I I can point you in the direction of so much uh, literature that will help you in that as we look at the evidence for the resurrection. G.K. Chesterton once said, the problem with the Christian ideal is not that it has been tried and found wanting, but that it has been found difficult and left untried. And the idea of, of worship seems difficult to us because we kind of view it as an affront to our freedom. But here's the irony. We all worship. We all serve someone. We all serve something. As Bob Dylan sang, and I'm sure you've heard this quoted many times by my old man, but as Bob Dylan sang, you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And these guards would rather serve money than God. That's why they get paid off. We might serve our own self-interest or our jobs or family or reputation, whatever it is. You can reject the authority of Jesus, but if you do, something else will always go in his place. And that's devastating for two big reasons. Firstly, it's treason of the worst kind. And the consequences of it are eternal. Jesus is the king, whether you want him to be or not. He is the king. But secondly, you become a slave to that thing you worship. And eventually that will just lead you to despair. You see, true joy and true freedom come from submitting to the only one who is truly joyful and truly free. 
And that's the other response that we see in this passage to Jesus' authority. Isn't there just a, there's a lot of confusion in Matthew 28, a lot of chaos. But there's a lot of joy in this chapter, a lot of joy. Look at these faithful women in verse 8. They departed from the tomb with fear and with great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings and they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Why? Why are they so happy? Why is there such joy in worshipping the risen Lord, Lord Jesus? Why is there a joy in saying Jesus is my king and falling at his feet and worshipping him? Because that's who he is. I mean, the whole purpose of Jesus' death was to bring about the forgiveness of sins. Very clear in Matthew to take the punishment that we deserve from God for all our wrongdoing. And Jesus, therefore, as the only perfect man, as God's king, has the authority to be punished in our place. He has the authority to lay down his life for us. And therefore, he has the authority to forgive us of all sin. He has the authority to end the sting of death, to destroy the, the evil in our lives without destroying us, and to bring us back to God for all eternity. To know him is to know the unending and unyielding mercy of God. To bow at his feet as these women do is not forceful submission to a tyrant. It's joyful worship to the only one who deserves my worship. This is the God that I am made for. This is the freedom of knowing that my life is in the hands of the one who rules and governs over all things. This is the joy of knowing that I am eternally loved, eternally forgiven, and even death itself will not be able to take me from his hands. This is the, the resurrection. It's the solution to the brokenness of this world. It's the era of new beginnings. And at last the gates of heaven have been opened. So that sinful human beings like me and you can enter in. Because the king has died and risen. That leads to a second point. Briefer. The resurrection gives us good news to proclaim to the world. Verse 19. Notice that it says, therefore. This is a great question to ask if you're looking through a Bible passage. What's the therefore, therefore? What's the therefore, therefore? So Jesus is saying, because I have all this authority, therefore, this is what I want you to do. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is what Jesus does. Whenever he calls you into himself, it's always so that he can send you out again. We see it kind of a mini mission in Matthew 28 with the woman at the tomb. They see the angel. The angel says, go and tell. They see Jesus and then they're overwhelmed with joy and worship. They just kind of want to hold on to him. But Jesus says, no, go and tell. Make disciples. That is the primary calling of you as an individual if you're a Christian. And that is the primary calling of the church. Go and make disciples. How do we do that? Two ways, baptizing and teaching. Firstly, baptizing. Now, we don't do this as individuals. Um, if you're sharing the gospel with someone and they say that they've, they want to follow Jesus, you know, you, know, you don't take them down to the river Tay and dunk them and baptize them. Baptism in the New Testament is done in the context of the church. But um, what Jesus is speaking of here, he's referring to the, the first thing that someone should do when they respond to the gospel. They should go and get baptized. 
to show that they have been cleansed from sin, to, to make a profession that they are part of God's covenant community and they follow Jesus. So the command to go and baptize here is fundamentally a command to go and tell people about Jesus so they can be baptized. To go and tell them the gospel. And that makes sense. If, if everything we've been saying about Jesus uh, is true about his authority, then of course that makes sense. Salvation for the world, the, the forgiveness of sins, the, the restoration of humanity. You want to tell people that. This is good news. Now, I've often heard people say to me, I've got friends who say this about Christianity, it's, it's okay to believe what you want just as long as you don't try and tell others they should believe it. I don't know if you've heard that before. You see, when someone says that, they're essentially saying that it's not okay for you to believe what you want about the gospel. Because if you believe the gospel, if you believe that Jesus is the only way that humanity can be saved, of course you're going to tell people that. It's like if, if I discovered somehow... If I discovered a cure for cancer, what kind of person would I be if I just kept that to myself? If I kept it to myself for fear of offending anyone, I would not keep that to myself. I would tell people no matter what they thought because that would be good news. But what we have in Jesus is infinitely, uh, I don't use that term lightly, infinitely greater than a cure for cancer. Because this is eternal salvation that is being offered to a world that is under the judgment of God. That's the first aspect. Go and tell. Baptizing. Second aspect of disciple making is to teach. Teach them, Jesus says, to observe everything I have commanded you. So this is after someone has been baptized. After someone has professed faith in the risen Lord. You don't just leave them, but you teach them. And you keep on teaching them. See, mission is not about getting people to make decisions. Mission is about getting people to become disciples. It's not decision-making, it's disciple-making. And we must keep working with others to learn more about Jesus. I mean, he's an infinite source of treasure. You never fully comprehend the greatness of the gospel. So, if you're here and you're a Christian, this is your calling from Matthew 28 people don't know about Jesus, tell them about Jesus. If people do know about Jesus, tell them about Jesus. Or teach them to obey Jesus. It's the Great Commission. And let's not miss the corporate nature of this. Individually, we've got to be doing this. But this is a corporate thing. It's the local church that baptizes. And the primary means by which God teaches his people is through the preaching of his word. The Great Commission is primarily a call, and I do believe this, it's primarily a call from the resurrected Lord to go out and to plant churches because that's what these 11 men did in the book of Acts. And look at the immensity of this. I don't want, just, I don't want this to be a Charleston thing because it's for all of us regardless of, of where God's called us. Look at the immensity. Who's this for? For all the nations. That means this, that the church is to proclaim the authority of the resurrected Jesus, that the churches are to be planted, 
in 196 countries to over 7,000 different languages to over 7 billion people. Oh, we need to think bigger about mission. I mean, that's an immense vision and aim from Jesus. We, we so often just want to stay where we are, don't we? We want, we, we want to feed our comforts to get the nice house, the, the family, the respectable career. And there's nothing wrong with those things. There's absolutely nothing wrong with those things. But there is something profoundly wrong when you, as a follower of Jesus, have that as your main priority. Oh, if we had a heart for the lost, for the nations. So encouraging to hear Hugh's prayer for that all those different mission organizations that we'd be willing to sacrifice comforts to let the nations know this king. And I pray that some of you here will consider going on some short-term mission trips. It's a great thing to do. Not all of us will go abroad. God has placed plenty of people in our lives who don't know Jesus, plenty of people who do know him but need to learn how to obey him. We're going to Charleston. It's not the most exotic place. Um, it would be cool if God called us to go to Barbados, but I don't believe he has. Um, but if we're not going to the nations, then we must pray for the nations. Pray for these mission partners. Send an email <laughs> to Jenny and Neil or to others who, who are out doing mission work in the nations tied with this church. Pray for church planters. Pray for gospel leaders that will not just evangelize, but that will teach other people how to teach others how to obey Jesus. Log on to operationworld.com and use that on your quiet times to pray for a country. Kylie and I have just got an app on our phone called the Joshua Project. It's a great app. Get that on your phone. Every morning in your quiet times, it, it tells you a people group that don't know Jesus and how you can pray for that people. Pray for the nations. The resurrection is just huge. It's not about my own personal relationship with God. Well, it is that, but it's not just that. It's about the world because God's heart is for the world. And if we follow him, we must share his passion, which is for all the nations. Thirdly, finally, very briefly, the resurrection assures us that Jesus is with us until the end of the world. Verse 20b, behold, Jesus says, I am with you always to the very end of the age could have just said behold I'm with you always and stop there but he wants it to be emphasized even to the very end of the age I don't know is there any sweeter promise in scripture let me ask you and ask me ask myself all the time the message of the resurrected Christ is so big and so important which it is if it's the offer of salvation to a world that's heading to an eternity without God which it is why do we find it so hard to teach and to tell others about Jesus? You know, we, we have been kind of had our heads in this Charleston church plant for the past year, um, maybe a bit longer actually. And I think recently, because it's all happening now, it's kind of great on paper. But then when you, you know, okay, now we've got to do it. I've been struck by how ridiculous it is how hard and especially when you meet some people and you always find that they're so you feel they're sometimes a million miles away from the gospel how on earth are we going to do this 
this passage has convicted me and showed me my heart. You know, the reason we don't do evangelism, the reason we doubt it, often, there's many reasons, but often it's not because we think we're ill-equipped or because we lack the gifts to speak well and articulately about Jesus. I feel, personally, for me, and I'm sure for others, the reason I don't do it is because I don't really trust Jesus. I don't really believe what Jesus says here at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Look, every Christian will confirm this with their lips, won't they? But do we really believe it? Do we really believe that this world is dying without Christ? Do we really believe that Jesus is this glorious king who brings this joyful worship? Do we really believe that Jesus is with us right now? See, mission is not Jesus saying to us, well, I've done my part. Now you go and do yours. That's not mission. He doesn't leave us. He won't and he can't because it's his mission and he is going to see it through to the very end. He's not not with us in the sense that that when you read a a letter from a loved one who's passed away, you, you kind of feel that they're still with you. Jesus is not with us in that sense because he's not passed away. He's alive and he is here by his spirit. He is with us on our mission. The presence of Christ is always with us. So how do, I, how do I get that truth really into my heart, not just in my head? Read his word. Simple. Read his word. Secondly, spend time with his people. Matthew 18. Two or three are gathered there. I will be also. And thirdly, just do his mission. Do it. Do it. That's how you know he's with you. Because he is with us, it will not fail. Look at Matthew 28. I mean, the mission that he gives these 11 men is ridiculous. (laughs) You 11, mostly uneducated men from this kind of backwater part of the Roman Empire, no one cares about you, no one knows who you are, I want you to go out and I want you to change the world and bring them under my authority. It's crazy. Did it work? Well, look around you. Here we are. 2,000 years later, millions of people across the world confess that Jesus is Lord. We are thousands of miles away from where this commission began. Of course it worked. Not everyone will respond well to the gospel. We know that. Some will reject. Some will rejoice. What does that matter? What does it matter when the news is so good, when people can be saved? You know, these 11 men who started this movement, they all died for it. They knew it was worth dying for because they knew that their king had conquered death. And as the church has spread across the nations over these thousands of years, as it has spread under the authority of Jesus, it has experienced hurt and hardship. There were some Christians in Egypt that were just gunned down recently this week. That does not stop the power of the risen Lord Jesus. If his church is attacked in Egypt, it will not stop this mission. If his church is suffering the hurt of famine in East Africa, it will not stop this mission. If his church faces ridicule and humiliation in Western Europe, it will not stop his mission because this mission goes forth with all the power and all the authority of the King of Kings. 
And he is the one who holds our lives in his hands, who loves us infinitely, who will raise us to new life. That is why Christians all over the world, Christians in Egypt who are mourning, can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall famine or danger or nakedness or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am with you always, says Jesus. Or if you're a Celtic or a Liverpool fan, you never walk alone. Never. Right up until the end of time itself. Nothing will stop this good news going to the ends of the earth. Nothing. And when we plant churches... And we have a vision for this city in which we want to see more gospel churches and we must have that. We align ourselves with this great world-changing, world-defining movement. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your gospel, for your good news. Father, thank you that it will go to the ends of the earth, that the nations will hear at the end of time there will be a great multitude too great to count made up of every tribe and tongue and nation that will gather around the throne of the Lamb and sing his praises Father we pray that we would as a church have a heart for the lost have a heart for the nations have a heart for this city we pray for churches to be planted here in Scotland we pray for it in Dundee we thank you for churches that are already being planted in this city. Thank you for the great work that's going on in Lochie right now. Father, we pray that more and more gospel churches will be planted in these areas, that people will come to bow the knee to Jesus and to declare that he is the king and to know the joy of worshiping him. Give us a heart, please. Help us to pursue the gospel above everything else in our lives. Help us to see the greatness of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.